0: I told somebody as I started out over here a few weeks ago that I wanted to begin the first part of my tenure here by taking us all back to the cross, taking us all back to Jesus' sacrifice, really focusing on that, because everything that we will ever talk about as long as I am privileged to be here will always have its foundation, obviously, in the cross. have an old rusty spike that I keep in there, keep in the office. It's the real deal. It's not real sharp on the bottom, but you know, it'll really make an impression if you stop and consider Someday when you walk by the office, and you pick this old spike up, and you just kind of rub it against your hand here. It's not real sharp, but you know, flesh and bone gives way if you hit something like this hard enough. I thought it was fitting and appropriate as we come to the last Lord's Day of 2018 and kind of this theme or focus of going back to the cross, that the final set of sermons in 2018 are going to have to do with the Lord's suffering on the cross. And tonight, we're going to kind of wrap it up with the things that he said on the cross. The titles of today's two sermons, part one and two, are what Jesus said and refused to say. Because some of the things that he refused to say are just as important and often overlooked. When I truly stop and reflect, and I I thank again the the men who have served up here this morning for taking me back to Calvary and back to the cross. When I truly, truly focus on and reflect on the price the sacrifice that Jesus Christ gave for me, for me, as we all should. And how that indicates what I am somehow worth to God. I don't know why I'm worth that much to God. It ain't because of me, it's because God is that good. But when I think about that, I cannot be helped but be brought to my spiritual knees in love and adoration and appreciation for what God has done for me. I cannot begin to put into words just how special God is to me, how much I love him, how much I appreciate that, and how grateful I am to be able to come here, to come anywhere where the Lord's Church is assembled, to say thank you on the first day of the week, to say thank you, to express my love and my appreciation, my devotion to him. By by practicing worship that is exactly what he asked me to do that night before he was crucified to remember him thus as we gather about the table. Despite, though, the incredible love and intensity of that event, and it's easy to focus on it when we're here, when when the bread and the fruit of the vine, the, the red fruit of the vine is here, and, and when we're singing, some of these wonderful songs that take us back, it's, it's easy to focus on Jesus, but, but even then, even then we as humans can sometimes become a little used to it, a little take it for granted in our thought process. And so this morning I wanted to try to come up with something to maybe help us to refresh it in our mind, to get us to think about it perhaps in a little different fashion, not Not because it needs to be different, but because sometimes our thinking needs to be just shaken awake a little bit. And so I'm going to describe a scenario to you, and I want you to try to put yourself in this scenario as best you can. Forget about everything else. Just try to put yourself in this scenario. Let's bring this up to date a little bit. It doesn't really compare with what Jesus did, but it was the best I could do. I'd like for you to imagine for a moment, for a moment, You've only been given a couple of days to live by a source that you infinitely trust. You know is right. We'll say God himself. I realize God does not speak to us verbally in in audible language, but let's just go with it for a moment. Let's suppose that somehow you have been given only a couple of days to live by God. What would you do with it? You knew this was going to be it. Would you quit your job? Really think about it. Don't just let it go. Think about it. What would you do? Would you quit your job? Would you spend more time with your family? If you only had a couple of days to live, would you maybe put some of your personal affairs or funeral affairs, perhaps, in order? Would you maybe forgive somebody that you've been withholding forgiveness from? Would you maybe apologize to somebody that you needed to apologize to while you still had time? Some people might take a mini-vacation, go see that one or two sites they've always wanted to see but never did, would you spend your time in the Word of God studying like never before? Or, now think about this, would you question God like Job did? Would you say, why me, Lord? (laughs) As you look at life and sunshine and feel the breeze on your face, would would you think maybe, why me, Lord? Why now? This isn't fair. Would you maybe be angry at God? Some people would be. Would you be angry? Would you blame God? Would you doubt God? Let me add another element to this scenario. Let's talk about the way in which you're going to die. Let's suppose, first off, that you are so incredibly rich that you don't even know how much money you got. It's listed in billions, not millions. Let's say that, and I know it's hard to imagine, but work with me here, let's say that you've got so much money and you're so rich and you have so much stuff that you make Bill Gates look like a homeless person. Everything is yours. You have anything you want. And so wanting to give back, you know you've only got a couple of days, you volunteer at a soup kitchen in North Tulsa taking a very sizable donation check with you to go work in a soup kitchen in North Tulsa. You're completely out of your element. You leave your magnificent, palatial home behind. But you go, and and you're going to do this out of compassion. And so you go. And you know from God himself, you know that that very night after you serve in that soup kitchen all day, you know that as you walk back to your car that night, you're going to be dragged into an alley, and you're going to be kidnapped. You are going to be tortured. You are going to be beaten. You are going to be brutalized and abused in every unspeakable way possible. This gang of merciless, Thugs is going to take you to this abandoned warehouse and they are going to abuse you in every way possible. They are going to beat you for hours on end until you finally expire. You die a horribly painful and unimaginably painful death at the hands of those very sorts of people you came to help, to pour soup for. And on top of that is if that wasn't bad enough, On top of that, here's what they're going to do. They are going to steal your car. They are going to steal your credit cards. They are going to steal your identity completely. They are going to steal your identity. They are going to have access to your bank accounts and your assets that are worth untold billions of dollars. And these people who did this to you are then going to live lives of luxury from that point on on your resources. They are never going to get caught. They're never going to have to pay for their crimes ever. Question. Would you still go to the soup kitchen? If you knew that, really, truly, what would you do? Especially if you had the choice of complete free will. And you had the choice, and God God would say, you don't have to. If you had free will, and you didn't have to go. And if you had a button on your cell phone, that all you had to do was push that button, and hordes of police officers would show up and put an end to all of this. And you've got your cell phone. And all you've got to do is push that button and call for that help. What would you do? What would you really, truly, honestly do? And before you answer that, consider this. Consider the fact of how much we seek to avoid any injustice or unfairness to ourselves. We do as human beings. We don't want anybody even saying anything unfair about us. We seek to avoid every injustice and unfairness to ourselves in any situation. What would you do? Jesus did have a choice. The Bible says in Hebrews 2, 17 and 18, he was made like his brethren in all things. He had a choice. It says in Hebrews 4, 15 and 16, he's tempted in all things as we are. He was tempted to call for those angels, to press that button and call for that help. (coughs) Jesus had known since before the foundation of creation what he was going to have to do and what was going to happen to him as a result of leaving his home and coming here in compassion to feed us the bread of heaven, Jesus knew. He had known since long before Adam and Eve were ever formed, ever tempted, or ever sinned, exactly what creating them was going to eventually cost him. He knew. He knew as he watched countless thousands of gallons of blood pour off of the Old Testament altars, pour out of these animal sacrifices over Israel's centuries. He knew exactly what all those gallons of blood foreshadowed for him. He knew. He knew as he watched person after person, generation after generation, throughout the millennia, sin against God and against himself. He knew what their sins were going to cost him. Every single sin ever committed since the beginning of time, including yours and mine, he knew the cost. He knew the full and awful price that he was going to have to pay that night for it. He knew. He knew how he'd have to leave his home in glory, give up equality with God. Make himself of no reputation. Come in the form of a servant, and be obedient to the point of death. Even the death of the cross, he knew. Philippians 2, 5 through 8, he knew. He had a choice, he was tempted in all things as we are, and yet what did Jesus do? Turn to me in your Bibles to Matthew 16. We're gonna look at what Jesus did. Matthew chapter 16. Beginning at verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord. This shall not happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're an offense to me, for you're not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. He told Peter, said, I'm going. Because this has been God's plan all along. And I have in mind the things of God. I'm going to do what God wants me to, no matter how painful. By the way, Jesus then goes on to say, you and I must do the same thing too if we are truly following him. Look at verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, just like Jesus was doing. Take up his cross, just like Jesus was going to do. And follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man? If he gains a whole world and loses his own soul, or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Jesus not only said, look, Peter, you've got to stop thinking like as a man thinks. You've got you to understand, I'm going to do what God wants me to do, no matter the cost. I'm going. And by the way, if you're following me, you've got to spiritually go and follow in my footsteps and live the same way. <coughs> you know, sometimes this time of year, New Year's coming up, people think, well, I got a New Year's resolution. I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna lose weight, or I'm gonna stop smoking, or I'm gonna do this, or I'm gonna do that. And you know, by about January 2nd, most of those, <laughs> all of a sudden they're not as as much of a done deal and, you know, as the time wears on, and we get into that, it's like, okay, this has lasted long enough. And some of us may even last two or three weeks on some of those. Here's what I want us to think about. Jesus knew since before the creation of time that this is what he's going to have to do. And he did not falter. He kept going to the end. Matthew 17, beginning at verse 22, Jesus said, while they were staying in Galilee... Son of man's about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they'll kill him in the third day to be raised up. He says it a third time in Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through 19. But I want to look at the parallel passage in Mark, Mark 10. It's the same, thing, same account, only it's Mark's version in Mark chapter 10, verse 32 to 34. Talked about this in the adult class this morning. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Jesus was going before them, and they were amazed. They followed. They were afraid. Then he took the twelve aside again. This was a repetitive thing. And he began to tell them the things that would happen to him. And he said, behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they'll condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him. Third day... He'll rise again. Jesus <laughs> knew every single bloody, gory, awful, horrible detail, but still he went. You know why he went? You know why he went? For you. And you. And you and you, and me. Because to God, we were worth it. In Matthew chapter 26, look what he said only two days beforehand. Matthew chapter 26, verses 1 and 2. came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings that he said to his disciples, you know that after two days is the Passover and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Jesus knew down to the most intense and infinite detail everything that would happen to him, John 18 and verse 4. And, and here's the thing, it wasn't like it was a surprise to him. It wasn't like he just found out. You know, sometimes you get something in the mail, you open up the mail, it's like, oh, we're overdue. Or whatever the case may be, it kind of comes as a surprise. This came as no surprise to him. This wasn't something he just found out. This was something that he had lived with since before time began. Look with me in John chapter 12, beginning at verse 23. He explains He's always known this was the purpose. This was the, He'd always known all of this. You know, sometimes we can kind of deal with something when it shocks us and all that, but when we have years and, we don't have centuries, when we have years and decades to think about it, sometimes we can, we can take all that time and we can find a, a reason in our own mind to, to not do it. Jesus knew all along, John 12, beginning at verse 23 reads as follows Jesus answered them saying the hour is come that the Son of man should be glorified Most assuredly I say to you unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies it remains alone But if it dies it produces much grain He who loves his life will lose it And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life If anyone serves me let him follow me and where I am there my servant will be also if anyone serves me him my father will honor now my soul is troubled. What do I say? Father, save me from this hour. Here it comes. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Jesus had always known this is how it was going down. And so it starts. The arrest, the beating, the mocking, the scourging, the torture, the abuse, the humiliation, and the crucifixion. Because you see... Without the crucifixion, there is no death. Without his death, there is no resurrection. Without his resurrection, we have no hope. And so in order for us to have hope, there had to be a resurrection. In order for there to be a resurrection, he had to die. And in order for him to die, according to the scriptures, he had to be crucified. I want to spend the remainder of this morning's as well as tonight's sermon taking a look at some of the statements that our Lord Jesus Christ during that process made, and some of the statements he refused to make, and why. Let us begin in Matthew 26, verse 36. What Jesus said, what he didn't say, and why. Matthew 26, very familiar. I know some of you can quote most of it, maybe, but please follow along like it's the first time you've read it. What did Jesus say? And Jesus came with them, Matthew 26, 36, to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there, right in the shadow of the cross. Took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed, and he said to them, my soul, it's one of those pains that goes right to the very heart and soul of who you are. It, it goes to the deepest inner, most intense, intimate, personal part of you. Jesus said, my soul hurts. It's exceedingly sorry. It's not just sorrowful, it's exceedingly sorrowful. Even to death. Stay here and watch with me. The implication is you're my friends. You've been with me through so much. Just Peter, James, and John, he took them a little ways. Through. He said, just sit here and watch with me. Stay with me, and I need you. He went a little farther, fell on his face, and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to his disciples, found them sleeping. He said to Peter, What? Couldn't you watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. Spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And, and again, a second time, he went away, and he prayed, said, Oh, my Father. If this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and, and he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy, and he didn't even bother this time. He left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. See my betrayers at hand. And as I read that, I see Jesus with that first time he prays, saying, Father, if there's another way, please. And, and then the second time he says sort of the same words, but he's, he's more resigned to it. And, and in my mind, I see Jesus by the time he gets up and he says, Hey, rise, let us be going. See my betrayers at hand. He has accepted the totality of this. It's almost like, Hey, see, my friend is coming. My betrayers, God's will is going to be done. Let's, let's see this through. But I want us to think about that term, my betrayer. My betrayer. This was a disciple whom Jesus had spent the last three and a half years teaching, leading, feeding. Three and a half years. They had worshiped together in a synagogue. This was his friend, verse 50. His friend whose feet he had just washed and whose soul Jesus was going to go to the cross to shed his blood in order to save. If Judas had accepted that on God's terms, which he did not, this was his friend. And his friend, his disciple, just betrayed him. Stabbed him in the back, sold him out, for 30 paltry, pitiful pieces of silver, 30 pieces of silver. You know, there's not much that hurts worse than one of you, there's not much that hurts worse than when one of your closest friends, family members, somebody whom who you've worked with, or Maybe even worse yet, one of your closest brethren in the church betrays you. When one of your closest, a person that you have worked and worshiped with alongside of for years in the church, and they stab you in the back, they hang you out the right, they throw you under the bus. They betray you. They betray your trust, they betray your friendship, they betray your fellowship. So Judas did. Turn back with me for just a moment, and look in Psalm 55. David addressed this many years prior to Psalm 55. The pain is told in Psalm 55 by David of how much it hurts when a member of God's family betrays all of that. Psalm 55, beginning at verse 12, David said, it's not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. If it was my enemy, I could deal with that. I could fight with him. Nor is it one who hates me who has exalted himself against me. Then I could hide from him. David said, I could hide from somebody who really hates me, I-, I could deal with that. But it was you, a man my equal. My companion and my acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together and walked to the house of God in the throne. We worshiped God together. We were close, we were tight. He goes on to talk about this one who's turned on him. It says in verses 20 through 23. He has put forth his hands against those who were at peace with him. He has broken his covenant. The words of his mouth were smoother than butter, but war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He'll not permit the righteous to be moved. When that happens, you've got to cast your care on God. You've got to trust God. As he says at the end of verse 23, But you see, here's the thing. Jesus had known, Jesus had known since before time ever began that his companions and his disciples were going to desert him that night. He knew that they were going to leave him. The ones that he had worked with and worshipped with and talked with and taught and loved and helped, he knew that they were all going to betray and deny him. Matthew chapter 26, verse 31 We would also note places like Psalm 41 and verse 9 where it is written, even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me or has acted as a traitor. But even knowing, even knowing Matthew 26, 31, even knowing that these guys would all flee, what did Jesus do? Went to the cross for them. That's what he did. Matthew chapter 26, beginning at verse 47. Verse 47 see something else that Jesus said, 26, 47. While he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the 12 of the great multitude of swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now his betrayer had given them a sign saying, whomever I kiss, he's the one, sees him. And immediately he went up to Jesus. He said, greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend. Why did he come? (laughs) Jesus had known for millennia why Judas came. There's so many other things here that Jesus could have said. Jesus had never lost an argument with anybody. There's so many other things that he could have said in his own defense, but you know what? He didn't. Do you think if Jesus had spoke up and begun an argument, do you think he could have won? He'd never lost one. But what does he do? Friend, why if he comes, all you hear. We see this again mere moments later if we read on. Verse 50, the rest of it. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. And suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand, drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest, and cut off his ear. Jesus said to him, but put your sword back in its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. And don't you think that I can now pray to my Father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? Here's something Jesus didn't say and it's just as important as what Jesus did say. You know what Jesus did not say? Send them, Father. I can't do this. He refused to say that all through that scourging and all through that beating and all through that crucifixion, all through, all through having that driven into his arms and fighting for every breath in his feet, he never. all he had to do was say, okay, Father, that's it, I can't do this. They ain't worth it. That's it. But Jesus never said that, did he? No, he didn't. He was faithfully silent, verse 54, because verse 54 tells us that <coughs> Scriptures wouldn't be fulfilled if he'd called out. And so as the Ethiopian eunuch, reading from the scroll of Isaiah in Acts 8, 32 and 33, was reading, he was led as a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearer is silent, he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. In his humiliation, Jesus didn't get justice. So why didn't Jesus ask for the angels? Why didn't Jesus ask for the angels? He'd already given the answer to that question 700 years prior to. Look at me in Isaiah 53, 3 through 7. He'd already given the answer. The answer was there. Tell you exactly why Jesus didn't ask for the angels, why that's something he didn't say was send them. Isaiah 53, beginning at verse 3. He is despised and rejected by men. Man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And We hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him, but here's why he didn't call for the angels because he had to carry our griefs and our sorrows, verse 4. He called the angels, he couldn't have done that. So he bore our griefs and he carried our sorrows. That's why he was, verse 4 of Isaiah 53, smitten by God and afflicted. He didn't call the angels because he had to be wounded for our transgressions. He had to be bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. If he'd called the angels, he never would have gotten the scourging. He never would have gone through the cross. He never would have died there and been resurrected. But he had to pay that price. But the reason he didn't call for the angels is so that he could go through that, because by his stripes, it's us that get healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. Watch this. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us. There's not a person in this room, whether you're a Christian or not, for whom Jesus did not pay full price for every sin you've ever committed. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silence, so he did not open his mouth. Peter says in 1 Peter 2.23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in turn. When he suffered, he did not threaten. And this is what we're gonna see as we go through the rest of the sermon tonight So many times, Jesus could have spoken up, and with a word. With a word in his defense, with a word to his heavenly Father. So many times, Jesus could have spoken up, and he didn't. Why? Because he trusted God, and he would obey the scriptures no matter the cost or the consequences. The whole crucifixion and the whole plan of redemption, every last bit of it that Jesus suffered, was all part of God's will and plan since before the beginning. And you know why, don't you? Save us. That's why. There's no other reason. Because you, Steve Lay, and because you, Karen Dingley, and because you, every one of you, were worth that to both God and Christ. That's why. Christian who walks around not thinking they're worth something to somebody. Has forgotten what God did for them. They both knew, as should you, however, that you can never get into heaven as long as you're in your sins. That's why Jesus went through everything he did, to shed his blood to cleanse our sins. His top priority and his main concern, the night of the cross, and even during his unjust arrest, was to save his people. Final passage of the morning, turn to John 18 to see that. John 18, 4 through 9. John 18, 4 through 9. Even that night, knowing all of that, his biggest concern was for his people, even during his unjust arrest. John 18, verses 4 through 9, read as follows. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward. Remember that wording, he went forward and said to them, whom are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. And and he asked them again, saying, whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered. I've told you that I am he, therefore, watch this, if you seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spoke of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. Even that night, Jesus' concern was for his people. <coughs> if you're after me, knowing all things that were going to happen, everything we've talked about, Jesus said, that's fine. Take it out on me. do you let these go? And so they did. And Jesus went to the cross. You know why, don't you? To save betrayers, deserters, and sinners. To save these guys. To save sinners who would fail and let him down from time to time like you and I do. Instead of saving himself from the agony that was beyond comprehension for himself. Because that is what you are worth to God. I hope you return tonight as we conclude. But for now, as we close this morning, I have a question. You've listened, and you've seen, and you've heard, and the songs, and the prayers, and the sermon. You've seen what you're worth to Jesus Christ. You've seen. You've heard. My question to you is: What is Jesus Christ worth to you? What is he worth to you? Is he worth being here to learn of him every time the doors are open? Is he worth, because of the forgiveness he gave to you, forgiving that person that you need to forgive? Is he worth your time? Is he worth your effort? Is he worth you being involved in serving him by serving his people? Is he worth you telling the next person that you talk to who doesn't know him just how awesome he is? Is he worth that to you? What is Jesus worth to you? The only thing I can think of that would somehow be worse than the agony of the cross that he went through to shed his blood to save you would be if you rejected it. If you refused to take advantage of the gift of forgiveness which that blood provides, if you rejected his gift or if you rejected making him the top priority in your life the way he made you in his life, that's the only thing that would hurt worse. Jesus, according to John 18 and verse 4, went forward to die for you. Are you willing to come forward to live for him? If you have never been baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, or if you have and you just need the prayers and the strength to serve God more, He went forward to die for you. Will you come forward now to live for him? If you have a need, will you come to the front as we stand